Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews Dr. Barrett Brown. Dr. Brown's unique skill set lies in empowering leaders to successfully navigate through complex challenges and rapid change. He's the author of dozens of articles on leadership, sustainability, and whole systems change that have been translated into six languages and are also used in the United Nations. Barrett, how did you become the unique and internationally recognized force for good that you are? What happened in your life that put you on this path? Well, I'm certainly unique. I don't know that I'm an internationally recognized force for good, but that's great of you to say that. And what put me on my path originally was at one point in my life going, well, who am I and how shall I serve? And getting deep into an understanding of what are the greatest gifts that I could bring forth or develop in service of helping create a flourishing world. And so over time, I had been working within the sustainability arena. I had started a fair trade organization and I'd been working in appropriate technology and renewable energy. I had been working uh, to help redesign refugee camps as environmentally sustainable settlements. And over time, I realized that one piece of the puzzle that seemed to be missing was the capacity of the leaders who were actually engaging in these complex, large-scale change initiatives. And I was more drawn toward that deep one-on-one work with people in service of supporting the development of their mental and emotional and relational capacities that would enable them to really be successful in the face of today's complexity and all of the change that's required to actually address our biggest social and economic and environmental global local challenges. And so over time I migrated essentially toward this intersection of deep leader development to build capacity at a very profound level and unlock advanced skills and mental and relational and emotional uh, abilities, ultimately. And then at the intersection of working with change agents who are really driving conscious capitalism initiatives or who are driving forward uh, social entrepreneurial initiatives or who are leading NGOs and advancing large-scale social change or environmental change initiatives. So that's where I am now, and the path really began with that inquiry. Who am I and how shall I serve? So just out of nowhere, that's where the question popped up. Or was it pain or pleasure that led you to that? Was it an intellectual exercise or was it more of an emotional or was it an integrated reaction to several of these activities? I'm asking because the road to exterior transformation, which is the work that you're doing right now, goes hand in hand with an interior transformation. Mm. So in your case, what exactly was it that drove you interior? In my case was, for instance, I studied comp- as I began studying, com- studying computer science and um, artificial intelligence, and it was uh, back in the late 70s, 79, and it was uh, tough. It was extremely, computer science back then was born out of math, and so it was really tough, and I started with, uh, you know, stomach pains I had ulcers and I went to the doctor and he gave me you know those antacids and uh, of course after you know 30 minutes of having them I you know I went back to the pain and so that wouldn't help me Mm. so I inquired like what is the source and for the first time I realized that there was I actually had an influence my mind had an influence on my body and that's how I began meditating but nobody on the outside can you know told me that Mm. what was it in your case Yes, sir. For me, the seeds were many. And in one case, I spent a large amount of time traveling through Latin America as a young adult, just with a backpack. I 
went all the way down the Amazon by boat. I hiked in the Andes. I worked with Bolivian and Peruvian indigenous women's cooperatives. I helped to do a documentary in the eastern Amazon basin of Peru on shamans who use ayahuasca as a healing medium. All sorts of interesting stuff in my early 20s that led to lots of self-inquiry. I was doing tons of journaling along the way, which is a really powerful practice for me. And so the traveling and being exposed to a moving feast of cultures and kind of the constant bombardment and colliding of new perspectives, that was a, a certainly a big part of the conditions that led to where I am now. I would also agree that there were certainly times in my life where I faced tremendous uh, failure, tremendous inability to move projects forward effectively, and could only turn and look at myself as being kind of the primary driver of that. And so practically, for example, there was one time that I was granted the opportunity to lead an organization around redesigning refugee camps as environmentally sustainable settlements. And this was came out of a design charrette that we did with Rocky Mountain Institute, which is a famous sustainability organization here in the U.S., in partnership with the U.S. Navy and British Royal Navy and a bunch of cool cats uh, who were deeply involved in sustainability. And basically, so I, I took it on and within six months had really floundered, was in, unable to raise funding, was, in, was unable to kind of build a business model that would make it work in this very complex space of international relief, and went through a very deep and dark night of the soul, saying, am I capable of doing this? How, you know, I saw the vision, I saw that you could use whole systems thinking and an integral approach to really create a powerful solution for refugee camps globally, but was unable to essentially manifest it. And so part of that process really led to me going, okay, well, uh, who am I and who do I want to become? And how do I set up the conditions to become that person? So this is some 25 years later now, maybe, and I am... I don't know if I could pull it off today, but I do know that I have grown in tremendous ways and learned more about what my unique gift here is. And so I would say that those were two major drivers, but I've always just had a lot of curiosity about what's happening uh, inside of me and who it is that's actually showing up here and noticing when my ego takes over or my little boy takes over that just wants to be loved but you know, kind of pushes for attention. And so that's always been a fascinating process, kind of noticing the different aspects of myself and how do I kind of corral them into a, a, a healthy, coherent approach to addressing challenges. Yeah, well, e ego, as we all know, is a very important aspect in making sure that our physical body, you know, does well on this planet. And so it has a beautiful role. I, I do not go along with those spiritual teachers who say, well, you have to get rid of the ego because I believe, well, first of all, I don't think that we will ever be able to get rid of the ego as long as we have a physical manifestation on this planet. And I believe that we could also, we could get, rid of an, uh, well, no, actually, I don't think we can get rid of the ego, but we could, um, we could transcend an ego to become, to grow, to be more, and, um, and I am a great believer in trans in creating, you can only transcend something that you know what it is, so you have to have an ego before you can transcend it, mm -hmm. so I think that's a very important distinction, which I think it's important within the context of all this mindfulness efforts that are going on in Silicon Valley and all, you know, around the world where people are taking on meditation. So in order, and one of the first thing that you hear from spiritual teachers, oh, you, you there's too much ego in there. So mm -hmm. I think you can 
build a, a healthy ego that you can then transcend on the way to becoming more ethnocentric and then world-centric. Mm -hmm. So your specialty is the application of integral theory in leadership. And this is uh, where we have worked together a lot over the past five years. Uh, and uh, so you're applying this also in executive coaching. Can you share with us your model and what makes it unique vis-a-vis sure. -vis traditional methods of leadership? So I'd say that integral theory is one of the tools that I've used that I find to be very effective. My repertoire has expanded beyond that to include complexity theory, to include embodiment work, to include uh, Tibetan Buddhism and mindfulness work. And However, integral theory is a great piece of the puzzle. And it actually does do a good job of bringing together the core framework for how I work with people. So for me, what I look at doing when I work with individuals or teams or organizations and systems is I look at a number of different dimensions. And let's call them waking up, growing up, uh, showing up, cleaning up, and tuning up, and then the final one would be linking up. So let me break those down super fast. So waking up is the process of essentially becoming more capable of managing our attention and intention and our flow. So classic sort of meditation training, flow state training is the part of ourselves that we engage in when we're, you ask when we're sex, waking up. Sex and orgasm can help people wake up. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, there's even research that suggests that it supports um, the development of, of brain cells, that it it's, uh, it's, uh, supports neurogenesis, right? And so there's the waking up piece. The growing up piece is an area that is one of my specialties is what am I, I, I did my dissertation in. And that's essentially this whole area of vertical development. And vertical development or vertical learning as it's sometimes called is the ability to essentially cultivate a mind and a heart that is more agile, that sees a broader vista, that is able to look deeper inside self and other and system and see nuances and patterns and connect dots and really create a coherent narrative of the whole that is not available at earlier or less complex worldviews. So it's kind of fundamentally about turbocharging your worldview so you can see a much bigger picture and make wiser and more timely decisions. And there's 120 years worth of research on it and tons of very practical practices that you can do. So that's that's the growing up piece. So we've got waking up and growing up. Another big part of the work that I do with people is called cleaning up. And this is where all of us work to recognize and integrate the dissociated parts of ourselves, the parts of me that I don't like, the parts of me that I've pushed away because I don't see them as part of who I am, the parts of me that I'm embarrassed about, and all of us have this, and they range from the extreme, like traumas from our childhood, to simple, unhelpful stories that we carry with us from day to day, right? So there's a fair amount of work you can do just cleaning up, similar to the, like the whole biohacking movement where when you're taking care of the body, the first thing you want to do is kind of take out the toxins out of your diet and out of your environment, right? So you're cleaning up. Well, it's possible to do that on a psychological level as well, and it's called shadow work in, uh, in my field. So, Not only possible, but also a must, actually. Well, as it turns out, all of that shadow holds huge amounts of energy because if I'm pushing away a part of myself all day, every day, subconsciously, it's actually using processing power that I could otherwise be using to cultivate creative solutions to complex challenges that I'm facing or to be more present with the person that's in front of me. 
and all of which has really profound implications if you do that on a regular basis going forward, day after day, year after year. And so it, it absolutely, the shadow work is a big, big, big piece of the puzzle to both waking up and growing up and ultimately helping people to thrive professionally and personally. And so there's a few other components that I look at and pay attention to when I'm working with leaders, teams, and organizations. And the other one is what I call tuning up. And tuning up is just your classic learning and skill development. So say you want to learn more about the carbon market, or say you want to learn more about natural capitalism solutions and kind of the investment opportunities there. That's essentially just a matter of going out and learning, studying. It doesn't require very deep reflection. It's more the growing up part that requires the, the much deeper reflection. But tuning up is important. It's a part of our continual learning process to be learning new skills, learning new, new ideas and stuff like that. There's two other really important parts of being a high-impact change agent, high-impact investor, high-impact leader, and that those are showing up and linking up. So showing up is the reality of sort of the courageous authenticity that it takes to just step into the world and speak your voice and take action, driving forward lots of experiments and just seeing what happens and really just bring it all the way to the ground and see how the system around you responds and see and, and then adapt accordingly. So we can be as developed as possible, but if we don't ever show up and actually try and do something differently, uh, then it doesn't really matter, right? So in the Zen tradition, this is the notion of coming back to the market with open hands after having spent time in the cave and like you come back into the market and you actually engage in a more conscious way. So the showing up piece is super important and for some leaders that's an area that they don't focus on as much. And then the final part is linking up. And so the reality regarding the complexity of today's world and actually trying to drive forward complex change initiatives, whether it be an investment initiative or some sort of multi-stakeholder environmental change initiative, is that no one is a castle unto themselves. And the notion of the knight in, on the white horse that can come in, that has the clear vision and can just drive forward solutions, is a cartoon and damaging vision that leaders sometimes hold on to. The reality is what we most need is collective intelligence and accessing the insights from the people on the front lines, from the different stakeholders in the communities, from all of the stakeholders in any given system, because it's that holistic collective view that will offer us the most kind of comprehensive and nuanced way of making sense of the world and in turn creating interventions that actually drive change. And so connecting shared leadership, distributed leadership is really part of the future. And if we can have a bunch of awake, grown up, clean, tuned up leaders who are showing up and linking up, those are conditions for creating a flourishing future. We have worked together for more than five years now and you help the Aqua Group in a significant way in both in our due diligence process and the de-risking process. As well as in building successful teams and organizations. Can you please share with our audience what the process entails, how it works, what tools you use and how team development is being implement it. Sure. So at the individual level, the most important thing really is to work with starting with the C-suite of an organization. And in the case of Aqua Capital, I am exceptionally blessed to be able to work with executives that are really conscious and really on their game. Their, their inner game is quite impressive. Uh, not only 
you know, the, the cognitive approach that you bring, but the emotional sensitivity and the emotional self-awareness and the commitment to growth and development. And so that makes a big difference. And so... Is that normal? It's, is that what you usually find out there in the industry? It's not normal to find a group of executives that are that have spent as much time cultivating their own development, that are as aware of their own ways that they sabotage themselves, that are open to reflect deeply, to quickly pivot and be agile in the way they see themselves, the way they see their organization, the way they see even the work that they do. And um, the, the reality is lots of organizations that I bump up against have people like that in them and the majority of the folks are operating in a more traditional, modern, just progress-driven, metrics-driven um, mentality that doesn't take into account the broader whole systems approach that I notice that the Aqua Capital executive team does, right? So work at the individual level needs to be developmentally appropriate, meaning the type of work that I can do with your team, for example, may be more complex than what I can do in a big tech company when I'm working in that space because they don't always have that degree of self-reflection. And so there needs to be a tuning, essentially, of what really works for these people here now. And so I developmentally tune the content that I bring to each of the organizations that I work with so that it's practical and grounded and really reflects the way that they see the world and challenges them to see an increasingly expansive world simultaneously. So practically, what does that look like for executives? It looks like doing 360 assessments where they get a chance to hear the perspectives of the people around them and reflect upon the differences in how people see, see them and how they see themselves. There's all sorts of shadow stuff that tends to be uncovered there. I, in particular, I like the Leadership Circle 360 as a 360 because it reveals lots of um, cool shadow stuff and, and gives insight into different competencies. So that's a particular tool I use. Um, the executive coaching also often involves people taking a look objectively at their stage of development. So this goes back to the growing up piece that I talked about earlier, Mariana. There's pretty cool Harvard-validated assessments that are out there that I've used within your organization, that I use within other large-scale organizations that give executives an insight into how complex is the way that I make sense of the world. And there's a direct correlation between the level of complexity of the way they make sense of the world, their sense-making, and how effective they are at leading transformational change. So leaders get really interested in, how do I move the needle on this one? Because it really will lead to me being more effective. We also look at things like complexity of decision-making around complex situations and zoom in on what are very specific skills that they can focus on developing that will help them to be better decision makers in the face of lots of ambiguity and change. And so there's sort of an assessment period and then the work one-on-one -on -one with executives, which I've done with folks within your team and other organizations, is always developmentally tailored to what's their leading edge. You can't give executives too much to focus on. You gotta give them two, maximum three things to focus on so they can really go deep in those. And so we will craft a unique development plan for them. And then that may include books, it may include meditation, it may include uh, particular courses that they take, particular practices that they do where they're speaking with their a team in a much more courageously authentic way and telling their truth skillfully even if it hurts them and like coming forth and being very vulnerable right so there's all sorts of kind of customized practices that we support them to do on a regular basis so that they can be more impactful 
And so there'll be some sort of development plan created and, and then we'll actually execute that. And then we'll do some sort of post-assessment using the same assessments that we did initially to see from a quantitative perspective, has this person actually grown and progressed in the areas that we wanted? And sometimes those are behavioral assessments, AKA Marshall Goldsmith's work, where you're looking at sort of like the Stanford approach to executive change, which is you're looking at just getting them to change specific behaviors. And then I blend in the Harvard approach to executive change, which is looking at shifting mental models and the much deeper immunity to change that people have and getting into the way that they make sense of the world and stuff like that. So I, I, I blend both of those. So that's what happens at the individual level. Let me stop there for a second and I can talk about the team and organization level. But do you have any questions or comments? About that? Right. I, I would just like to give a little bit of the framework that we're uh, talking about sure. for our listeners, especially if, you know, whether they're investors or entrepreneurs, it doesn't really matter because that's part of our de-risking, respectively, the development uh, work of the teams that we invest in. Yeah. So it all starts with, uh, let's say, a screening, a due diligence process where we decide whether or not we're going to, we're interested in the, in the technology, and we are then taking a look at the team, mm -hmm. both individually and culturally. Right. Sometimes there's only two people <laughs> in the organization, and yet there's still a culture there. So, and you just outlined some of the tools that you're using to make an assessment on what is their level of consciousness. Not in order for us to grade people because that's not what we're doing. We do that with ourselves. We just want to find an assessment, a place where we can jointly move forward once we decide to invest in developing the team, in making sure that the organization, the individuals, eventually come to fulfill their dream and our dream. Mm -hmm. We're all together in the boat. It's not them versus us, it's mm -hmm. us together. Right. So, and this is where we're talking about the 360 assessment, the Harvard tools and the Stanford tools. So, and it helps and we, of course, it helps develop the team. It helps get to the point where we can exit our investment successfully. Um, and also, it helps us grow vertically and horizontally and link with whatever purpose we have in our lives. So is that a fair summary of how we work together in terms of uh, the application of your work within the investment field and company development, you know, Absolutely. toward TEAL? Um, you know, TEAL is the term that has been made uh, popular popularized by uh, Frédéric Laloux in terms of developing forward-looking teams and second tier. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you summarize that well. And the bottom line is that from a risk mitigation perspective, if you're going to invest in an organization, you want to be really tuned into what's happening regarding the inner game of the executives and the team that are actually going to be making your day-to-day -day strategic and managerial decisions. And the assessments that we do at an individual and a team level give us a, a nice x-ray with respect to that. But more importantly, your what I love about the integral investing approach is its long-term commitment to the deep development of those individuals and teams. And so not only what we get out of the assessments is sort of a snapshot x-ray of like, it, are there big risks here regarding the inner game of the individuals and the, and the teams? But you also get a baseline to support development, which then allows you to design as part of your investment strategy a intervention in the organization that creates the conditions for really healthy development at an individual leadership level, at a C-suite level, at a managerial level, and at a team and culture level. And so these initial kind of x-rays that we take serve dual purpose in that way. Risk assessment plus supporting the early design of 
okay, well, what do we do now if we like this company? How do we actually accelerate its development such that the leaders are able to shift into an optimum performance state and the team is able to do so as well? Right. We are at the end of the three days of Singularity University uh, Summit and um, the final keynote speech talked about how to become a 10x, like a, implement a moonshot for a company, for a nation, for an organization, for an individual. And if there was one word that would summarize that is address your fear. Mm. And the, the way how, the suggestion as to how to address that fear and overcome it, I mean, we all will forever have a fear, of course. Uh, because we're humans, was to increase your compassion as a key characteristic to address fear. Mm -hmm. And so what you and I, you know, worked on is how do we identify what our fears are and how we, do we grow, you know, vertically, horizontally, showing up, cleaning up. Uh, to achieve a higher level of compassion. I think this is crucial because that brings along also intrinsic happiness. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, we don't do this stuff just because we are sadistical, maybe some of us are, or masochistical, but to increase our level of happiness and joy. Mm -hmm. And so at least the reason why we're in this game is to identify the impediments toward achieving that joy and happiness and, you know, experience happiness and joy and and you know ultimately our purpose on this planet so this is where it all comes together for me and whether i apply these tools and skills in an area that is makes sense for me such as investing in high tech and biotech and healthcare doesn't really matter at the end of the day what matters is how do i experience the presence of being here now in a joyful way yeah, so we are at the beginning of the exponential tech era, and that's why we're here in San Francisco attending those singularity universities. And we already feel how exponential tech is disrupting everything that we know. And um, whether it be from business and education, governments, um, but also investing and the way we do business. So in your opinion, how is exponential tech, biotech, all this disruptive of everything affecting us? And from your perspective, what can we do as investors and entrepreneurs and leaders to prepare in order to lead consciously? So, and how does that fit with your vertical leadership development practice? I think it's super important to stay on top of what's happening in the exponential technology space. And that's part of regular tuning up and essentially being clear about what are the opportunities that are arising? What are the intersections of technologies that are happening in the market space such that you can spot early opportunities? So that's a really important regular practice. That should be like just brushing your teeth that you're constantly kind of monitoring what's happening in the exponential tech space. And what should not be avoided, though, is the inner exponential tech work as well, which is the work of going deep into yourself and studying your own inner landscape as closely as you study the market landscape. Because the reality is that the process of doing that unlocks significant mental, emotional, and relational capacities. And those are the very capacities that are needed to execute and on key exponential technology initiatives and to essentially come up with creative, innovative, new interventions and investments. So for me, 
it's important to balance the exterior view and the tracking of that with as equal a commitment, and I'm serious about the as equal a commitment in time and energy into paying attention to what's happening inside of us and inside of the people around us because there are tremendously powerful tools that support the accessing of new capacities that literally will drive people into a level of creativity and innovation and connecting the dots that they have never experienced before. And there are practical tools in Eastern wisdom traditions like in uh, Dzogchen or Mahamudra, approaches to Buddhism where people learn very, very specific ways of working with the mind. There are very practical tools in Western psychology, like positive psychology and the mindfulness practice that support people, again, accessing these deeper parts of themselves that are absolutely what is needed to see a bigger, broader view and to really effectively engage and execute. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Yet I would like to ask you to become more specific uh, as to what does it actually mean. Uh, in my case I've been meditating for 30 years, it took me forever to really find the right teachers. There are so many people out there and uh, particularly as we look at Silicon Valley and we listen to the mindfulness movement, I am um, pleased to hear that uh, entering the high-tech world and yet at the same time you and I know that this is just the beginning, the entry door to knowing yourself and your interior life. Because waking up doesn't mean growing up. It's not a guarantor for that. So what would you recommend how to move to, to the next level? Because the reason I'm asking this has to do with the fact that as these unbelievable minds that are currently developing AI systems and robots and vision and all these uh, neural networks and so on will build in their own biases into the systems that they're building. Mm. In other words, an egocentric mind will create an egocentric robot. Mm. An ethnocentric mind will create an ethnocentric robot. And a world-centric mind or a spirit-centric mind will most likely create an ethnocentric robot, which is, from my perspective, what the world needs. We don't need more ethnocentric egos uh, or egocentric e egos. So this is a lot of metaphysical blabber that I'm giving here. And yet I would really appreciate your view on how to access better tools than the ones that are currently being presented. Mm. And I know it requires a lot of sitting on your cushion and doing a lot of re reflection and therapy, and yet we need to talk about this. Sure. So, practically, the first thing to do is to look at the people that you spend the most time with because we will become like the people that we, the five people that we spend the most time with, basically, right? So by, for example, I have a men's group and I'm fortunate that it includes a bunch of people that are much wiser, much more conscious, much more loving than I am. And so I get to, you know, spend time literally templating how they think, how they feel, how, how they engage, and it helps me to, when I'm at my best, rise to a better space. And um, this, so that's a very practical grounded thing that I would recommend to people is to kind of, in a healthy way, upgrade their closest community. And then 
with respect to finding a teacher, practically the ones that I refer people to are, I think that the Diamond Heart work is very powerful. I think that Daniel Brown's work, Daniel L. Brown, who does uh, the Pointing Out Way, which I, both you and I practice, uh, his work is exceptionally powerful. I think that Adya Shanti is excellent. I think that also uh, um, the final person that I tend to recommend people to is uh, Eckhart Tolle. And so I think that them, I would also include actually Pema Chandran in, in, in that group of folks. So there are a lot of teachers out there that are potentially phenomenally effective and they're just not popular yet. Um, and actually, I would add Thomas Hubel to the final kind of list of folks. I think that he's bringing down a very, very powerful transmission. And he's uh, in Austria and lives in Germany, uh, spends part of his time in Israel and has a large European and, and American following. So, so yeah, it's important to find a someone who has gone further down a path of wisdom and compassion than you have. That could be your grandmother. It could be your, your spouse, right? Ultimately, I think that life is occurring around us in a user-friendly way. I think it's a user-friendly universe that's ultimately supporting us to learn and grow and develop in the ways that are of greatest service to us now. So you can also think of life as, as the ultimate teacher and just tune into, okay, where am I contracting today? What did I do that I got triggered by? What did I do that was moving? What doors opened? Right. So that's the the work of finding a, a wisdom and compassion path, because wisdom and compassion really are two sides of the same coin, is super important. And there are lots of good paths out there, and there's a lot of junk out there, too, um, that can be uh, essentially dead ends for many years, even. So then there's the reality of actually being able to engage at a psychotherapeutic level and at a somatic level. And in the US, it's easier to talk about, hey, I'm working with a therapist and I'm using this person to help kind of optimize my performance. Uh, in, in Europe, in some areas of Europe, it's kind of like a quiet thing. You wouldn't say that, uh, which is okay, but there's a limitation to that. The reality is that uh, the capacity that's able to be unlocked through some therapeutic work, even for people who are really highly functioning, is awesome. And so there's that piece. There's also somatic work. There is so much that we store in our body, past traumas, contra contracted reactions, emotions, that are, are really able to be unleashed and unlocked in super powerful ways to help us be more effective. And so having, doing somatic work over time is incredibly helpful. And that can take the form of something like somatic experiencing work, through yoga potentially, through uh, practical practices like uh, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing, which is a very cool technique I've gotten a ton of benefit out of. So somatic work is an important piece of the puzzle. And the point here is not to do all of this all at once, but to recognize that there are seasons of our development and to bring on these different practices over time as part of an integral approach to developing ourselves. So let me stop there for a second. I can, I can go on, but I just want to check in. Yeah, I, I just I would just like to summarize because the tendency, um, at least I've been in, in that, is to replace one line of development, i.e. the spiritual one with the, you know, the psychological with the spiritual and believe that if you sit on a cushion, your somatic work will be addressed as well as the psychological aspect, which yeah, is not the case. 
it won't. Yeah, so that's a trap that I, I personally walked into. So I, I would like to, you know, summarize what you just said and encourage people to really address all of these lines of development, you know, the physical, kinesthetic, uh, with the psychological and the uh, spiritual line of development. So, yeah. At the very that. least, at the very least, we want to have four practices. Right. Spiritual, uh, physical, psychological, and shadow. We get enough sort of mental development in our, in our daily work. We don't necessarily need to have cognitive practices. But if we can create an integral practice, and there's a great book called Integral Life Practice that'll teach people exactly how to do this, written by some mutual colleagues of ours, uh, Ken Wilber, Adam Leonard, Marco Morelli, and Terry Patton. And, but the point is that by having a physical practice, spiritual practice, shadow practice, and psychological practice, we're able to essentially take a whole systems approach, or kind of like a swarm of bees approach, to accelerating our development. Because it turns out that kind of the latest theory on this stuff is that by cross-training in those areas, we actually accelerate development in all of them. So the one common piece of research that's referred to in this is that people who lift weights and do resistance training and also meditate tend to be more effective at their weightlifting and also more effective at their meditation as opposed to people who only weightlift and, or those that only meditate. And so there's a cross-training aspect that actually leads to accelerated development of the whole self. And so that's a, just a critical piece of the puzzle. And yeah, I went for years just doing spiritual work and then all of a sudden found, whoa, there's all this psychological stuff, trauma stuff that I hadn't paid attention to as a kid that was holding me back. It was showing up in work that I was doing. You know, I missed some deadlines of yours, frankly, because I, I needed to face that part of myself and kind of deal with it. Who didn't? We are. We do have a physical body, and we have also an emotional body. And mm -hmm. yeah, so absolutely. So from let's go back a little bit to the application of this interior work in the world and as to how we show up in the world. So from the investment and company building perspective, mm -hmm. How can we reach the tipping point in investing where every investment is performed in a sustainable way to address the grand global challenges such as climate change, overpopulation, inequality, and so on? So how do these all practices come together from your perspective? I'm asking this question because if you look at the numbers where impact, when you look at impact investing globally, um, impact investments only represent 1% of the total assets under management worldwide, where measurement criteria for, for profit and people and the planet, you know, in, you know, their diversity are being applied. So that's actually too little in order to achieve the shift that we actually need to achieve, the transformation to save ourselves, uh, to save ourselves you know, from, you know, ocean levels rising, overpopulation, and so on. So, from your perspective, can you draw the circle where all of this interior work comes together with the exterior work? Sure. So, it's definitely both interior work and exterior work that's required. And so, on one level, yes, it would be awesome if there was a tipping point of 10% of leaders who had significant authority, power, and influence across the planet were able to cultivate their development into a later stage that authentically cared for humanity and its future and the environment and social justice and all of the things that we authentically want when we hold a deeper way of essentially a wiser and more compassionate way of seeing the world that are, you've been calling world-centric. So that would be great, and there's thousands of people like you and myself that are out there who are actively supporting leaders to grow in that direction, and that work continues to be really important. I have also had the pleasure of 
working deeply within a Dutch foundation that invested heavily in large-scale environmental change. And this, it's called Initiative Handel, which is the Dutch Sustainable Trade Initiative. And it's gone on to become a very, very big, successful organization with respect to its impact. And the approach that they took, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from it. The bottom line is what they did is that they created objectives that were relevant to all of the stakeholders in the system. And they didn't pressure the different stakeholders to see the world in a different way. They essentially allowed those different stakeholders to go after those objectives for their own reasons. So let me be, give you a practical example. We worked in global supply chains, specifically in agri-commodities like uh, coca for chocolate, tea, soy, tropical timber, <clears throat> and coffee. They work with about a dozen or 16 of them now. And so we would work with the largest corporations in those spaces, Nestle, Mars, Unilever, Sara Lee, and then we would work with the traders also, so Cargill, Ecom, organizations like that. And then we'd work with the governments in the North and the South, Dutch, in the case of the cocoa industry where I worked, we worked with the Ivorian government from Côte d'Ivoire and the Ghanaians, Cameroonians. And then we'd work with the NGOs that were interested in addressing the Millennium Development Goals at the time, or now the Sustainable Development Goals. And so that, that is a group of strange bedfellows when you think about having, uh, you know, Nestle and Rainforest Alliance and the Ivorian government and the Dutch government and uh, like all together trying to figure out a program. And so what the Dutch Sustainable Trade Initiative did really well was it created a series of quantified outcomes that everybody really wanted to work toward. But then it didn't pressure them to do it for any other reason than for their own reasons. So. Classically, what's happened in the United States, for example, is that a company gets hammered by a nonprofit for not caring about what's happening in Indonesia to the ripping down of the rainforest, which is destroying orangutan habitat. And they're kind of forced them to take on this world-centric perspective. And it's not really in the company's best interest to, to do that, and so they don't. So in these particular situations, for example, we targeted 20 million tons of sustainably produced cocoa out of Côte d'Ivoire, which produces 40% of the world's cocoa. And we did it in a way that it was a, uh, there was a, a serious business advantage for Mars and Nestle, who were the major players there, to engage in the production of sustainable cocoa, to put literally millions and millions and millions of euros into it. There was a serious advantage to the NGOs that were involved in it as well, because they would help to alleviate poverty in the cocoa supply chain. There was advantages to the Dutch government, because they would prove that they can do local economic development at a distance, um, which helped them to get re-elected. Re and it, there were advantages to the government of Côte d'Ivoire, who was largely interested in staying in power because they would essentially be able to ensure that the coca industry thrives into the future. They get their cut off of that, of course, and they, would able, they were able to kind of manipulate the market in, in ways that they wanted. So all these strange bedfellows came together and literally delivered on these very, very hard targets, putting in millions of, of euros, putting in significant time and energy. And that is an example of essentially aligning the values and the developmental worldviews of the different stakeholders toward a common objective. And I think that's a big piece of the exterior puzzle that's needed in order to actually create the future that we all want. Which, of course, is only possible if it's driven by people who have a world-centric view and are the ability to see the you know, how all these players can work together. 
Yeah, but you don't need that many of no. those people to do that. Like, okay. all of those players didn't have to be that. Okay. Right? Like, Jan Case Viss, who is the kind of the leading sustainability guy from, from Unilever, he was able to design those programs and get them set up and get Unilever's and its entire system moving toward. Like, we worked with them to help produce, uh, to help get 250,000 Kenyan tea pluckers certified in sustainable tea production partnering with Rainforest Alliance, right? And he was able to really make that happen, and he did it from a big, broad view. But you don't need that many players in the system to get the system aligned in that way. It just has to be kind of at the earliest stages of design. So I'm quite bearish on the on having a really thriving future because there's a lot of people that are popping into this integrated teal perspective that is able to see the whole system, that is able to see the needs of the different stakeholders, and is able to create these win-win-win-win-win solutions and help execute them. Great. So in summary, how can, can you summarize by giving us like three major pieces of advice that our listeners could take away with? Advice away from, from um, well, for investors, entrepreneurs, uh, players in this field? Sure. First thing to, is to recognize that if you don't develop the way that you see, you'll never be able to see what others are seeing. And the reality is that many investors probably aren't able to fully meet some of the really advanced entrepreneurs that are showing up and offering them. They're not able to see the vision that they have. They're not able to connect to, in a hard way to the potential of the impact. And so they miss out on the opportunity. And so as an investor, if you're not upping your game in the way that you literally make sense of the world and the complexity with which you can uh, connect the dots and bring together coherent solutions and see patterns across different industries, then you're falling behind because those young startup entrepreneurs are way beyond you. And they are going to come to places like Aqua Investing, frankly, because you guys have the capacity to meet those type of people and see them. And so you guys will get the investment deals, right? So that's one thing that I would suggest is to significantly work on the deep development that enables people to have greater cognitive and emotional and relational capacity to be able to actually see and relate to the subtle, nuanced, uh, and intense realities of these entrepreneurs that are coming forth. Multiple perspectives. Yeah, to, to be able to just take on lots of perspectives. And it's not just about being smarter. Of course not. <laughs> and... Um, so the second thing that I would recommend is to also cultivate intuition. The U.S. Army has a competency called tactical intuition. They actually actively train it and develop it, and there's lots of good academic research out there about that intuition is real, it's able to be cultivated, and it has significant impact in making decisions in complex situations where we just don't have all of the information that we need and things are changing really fast. So that's a huge leverage point for any leader and especially an investor is to be not only really strong in their gut but also in their intuition which is more of kind of like a, a, a heart sense or a kind of a, a you know a, even a spiritual connection. And so that, that'd be the second piece. And then the third piece really does have to do with compassion, how you opened up our conversation today. And the reason why compassion is so important is because there are significant limits to how far we can push. And we can actually break people and break ourselves and break systems by applying too forceful an approach. And much of the pressure in the investment space for quick returns is a forceful approach. 
that doesn't take into account how do I actually set up the conditions for the long-term health of the individuals and teams and organizations that I'm investing in. And I've learned along the way that leaders lead others the way that they lead themselves. And so if someone is really harsh and judgmental toward themselves, they're going to be harsh and judgmental toward the board or the CEO or the executive team that they're investing in. And that ultimately is a way of deeply undermining the relationship and undermining the impact that you can ever have with them. And so the ability to, yes, challenge effectively, but also to support deeply and to challenge and support in a coherent way is really what organizations need from investors that are engaged with them. question, where can people learn more about your work? Sure. So they can find me on LinkedIn easily enough, Barrett C. Brown. And I'm at afeno.com, A-P-H-E-N-O.com. And then through you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Barrett. Oh, it's been a delight to be here with you all. And I really look forward to continuing to partner with you into the future. And more importantly, I hope that this dialogue and these dialogues really help to bring about an unprecedented flourishing of humanity, nature, earth, in service of really creating the future that we all want. Wonderful. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. To find out more about Dr. Brown, visit afino.com. That's A-P-H-E-N-O.com. To find more information on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.